Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Master Retention Podcast, presented by UserWise, the live ops engine built for mobile games. Uh, this week, we have Anina Salvin, who's the CFO over at Next Games, joining Tom Hammond to talk about uh, a lot of things finance with mobile games. So, uh, really, tips for financial success. Um, Anina and Tom are going to talk about creative ways to draw in investors, how to increase revenue. Uh, and tips for meeting and exceeding your studio's goals. So some really, really good stuff here. A lot of our content and our, our interviews have been around just sort of like how to design a game and how to, um, uh, you know, acquire users and sort of the, the tips uh, from in the trenches of the game. And I think Anina is going to sort of fill a gap that we haven't talked about on our podcast before. So uh, really good stuff here. Um, I'll hand it over to, to Tom and Anina. Enjoy. Uh, hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to today's Mastering Retention episode. Uh, today, we have our first financial person on with us, which is uh, super awesome. And something that's really like important to me, and I think a lot of people don't really think about is like, you know, really games is actually a business. Like we've got to make enough money so that we can pay salaries and continue to make games because if we don't, we're just kind of having fun doing a hobby here. Um, so today I'm actually joined with Anina Salvin, um, who is currently the CFO at Next Games. Um, they were just recently acquired by Netflix. So exciting stuff there. Um, but uh, before we dive into the whole you know, financial world of uh, gaming and stuff today, um, Anina, I always like to ask, you know, what's your story? Like, how'd you get into working in games? <laughs> I have a weird story. I'm actually supposed to be a chef. That's what was supposed to happen. Uh, I went to culinary school, started working in the restaurant industry back in, you know, pre-crisis. So about 2004, um, the restaurant that I worked at got bankrupt probably probably filed for bankruptcy three or four times a year on average. Um, and, you know, then oh. had a new one with a new name. And those were the good times, right? Wow. So <laughs> I mean, my journey, I think I was about two years in, I was thinking, okay, you know, before I have this dream of starting my own restaurant, maybe I should learn something about business. So I decided to apply to business school and I got into business school very quickly here in Helsinki. I realized everything was about portfolio management or investment banking, which wasn't really what I was looking for. So I discussed with my professor who said, well, listen, if, you know, if corporate finance is what you want to do or more of like, you know, let's say financial planning and thinking about how to run a company from a financial perspective, then you really should go to the United States, to either Canada or the United States, but like North America, because that's where those concepts really were kind of established and invented. And like Europe is catching up. So um, and also on the entrepreneur side. So just, you know, so go there. So I applied to a bunch of schools, got a scholarship, went to the U.S. You know, obviously the crisis hit. So for a foreseeable time, and I always joke about this, like tried to stay in America until they basically told me get married or get out. Right. Like I've run the course of my visa. You know, you're no longer welcome in America. You got to move away. Um, and the reason why that like in Europe at the time, like it, there simply weren't jobs in finance, like not in finance, not in many areas. It was a tough time. Um, but I decided I got a phone call from a friend who said, hey, I have this company that's doing startup consulting um, and you have a perfect profile because you've actually done this in the US. So, you know, come and join us. I was like, all right, that sounds like fun. Um, so I joined them. They were 12 people at the time. They're now 900. So that company grew pretty massively as well. Um, and um, 
Yeah, so joined them and uh, started working first with a bunch of kind of two categories, tech startups and medical startups. Um, really figured out quite quickly that there's shockingly a lot in common with pharma companies <laughs> and tech companies. Hail of a lot of money spent in R&D, takes time to get something out there, and then it's usually go big or go home, right? Like pretty similar principles there. Um, so those are my two specialties. Uh, got introduced to Next Games as one of my clients back in 2000, and I think it was 13 or 14. Like they were just founded, very, very small company, just yep. about to, to acquire Helsinki Gameworks, like really in the foundation. First seed round, I don't even think they had closed the, the A or B round at that point in, in time. Um, and started working with them first as a consultant, and then eventually he, you know, kind of headhunted me and said, hey, why don't you come in and start building up our finance department and, and business intelligence eventually, you know, sort of from the ground up. And I thought that sounded fun. Um, so I decided to jump on that and I didn't really have a background in gaming or an experience in gaming, but I always like to say that keeping in mind, like iPhones didn't even exist when I went to uh, university. So it's not really like, it, I mean, we talk about gaming experience, but it's not free to play, right? Like very few people had actually worked in what we call free to play gaming or economics. Like my experience was essentially at the end of the day, as good as anybody else, because that had really only existed for a couple of years, like two, three years, maybe. I mean, Rovio was still doing premium games at this point. <laughs> Angry Birds was something you paid for, right? So um, so really, like, when I think about it back and I felt like I didn't have experience in gaming, it's it's worth questioning, like, what really was experience in gaming at that time? Because you cannot say <laughs> that a console game certainly, you know, doesn't have the complexity of right. an economy that a free-to-play game does. Yeah, that's great. And you actually came to Madison, Wisconsin, right? Because I'm in Madison, Wisconsin, so... <laughs> Yes, I I, uh, I went to Madison, to UW-Madison. Um, Jim Seward was my professor on the corporate finance side. Phenomenal, like great, learned, learned I think, I feel like most of the important stuff, uh, I had others as well, but he was like a great professor. Uh, Granger School of Business, uh, some UW <laughs> alumni, go Badgers. <laughs> Love it. Yeah, it's probably not that different from Helsinki because we still get a lot of snow and then we have, you know, pretty nice summers that like lull you into forgetting about the winter and then it just comes and slaps you in the face again. But uh... <laughs> I agree. I would say people are tend to be more open and friendly in the Midwest, but that's about the only difference, right? There's a, there's a great, you know, beer culture. Madison has a great drinking culture too. So it really didn't feel that different. <laughs> coming from Finland and being like, oh, people still drink a lot in here. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, fun times. Well, that's great. So I wanted to talk a little bit about, or really for the people that are, you know, maybe thinking about starting a company or just kind of getting into it, which, you know, little, maybe not super known secret, or maybe the secret that everyone knows is that pretty much everyone in game all has this dream of one day starting their own studio and having, you know, the full creative uh, <laughs> design over everything. Um, and I just thought it might be interesting to talk through, like, let's say you and I decide to go and launch a studio. Like, what are the things that we need to be thinking about and doing from like a monetary standpoint to put us like, so that we have sure footing to actually successfully build and launch games. Um, so, you know, if we started up a company today, like 
what would your first steps be or what would the things that you'd be thinking about be? So the first thing that I would think about as a game creator is like, what is really the reason why you're starting the company, right? Because that should really, really guide you to where you're going for money. Because the biggest mistake that um, founders and game creators make is that they don't think about this. They either think I'll take any money that's coming my way, or if they really turn out to be great that they have multiple options, they don't really think carefully about what of those options make sense, right? So one of the reasons why you may want to take an advisor on who's done some of this before is to really have you think about this. And what I mean by that is, look, if your biggest ambition in life is just to say, and there's absolutely everything is okay with this, but to say, hey, I want to have a small games company. I don't have the passion to create a billion dollar like monetizing machine. What I want to do is have creative freedom and make enough money to make sort of more like indie products, um, but that can support a studio, let's say five to 10 people for the rest of my life, just doing things that are fun and maybe success will come, but it's not the main goal of what I'm doing. This is a lifestyle choice, not a business choice, right? And there are some companies who are doing this that are really successful, right? They'll run for years and you get to be your own master and create your own team. Then you should be careful about which VC money you take. Because whenever you take money from somebody, at some point in time, they expect returns. And they will give you a lot of freedom for the first two, maybe even three years, maybe even four years. But all funds have to close down after a particular period of time. They have to exit their investments. And at that point in time, you know, you're running out of time or money if you picked the wrong partner. So you want to consider like those types of things when you when you start looking for um, for investors versus if you're thinking, you know, I'm going to build this billion dollar whale oil like monetization machine um, and I'm going to I am going to become a billionaire. We're all going to become billionaires and create this like huge um, business out of making games. Then you want to make sure that you pick funds um, and or investors that have the possibility to continuously invest a lot. So what I mean by that is, and you know, take a simple look at, um, for example, what Metacore did now with uh, Merge Mansions, right? Like they raised yeah. 150 million credit line. They've spent 65 million to get to 50 million in revenues. So we can all imagine that if that needs to be a billion dollars in revenues, how much money you need to actually <laughs> be putting in to get there over time. Um, other great examples, Scopely, I think at some point in time, they were raising about 150 million a year um, to get to where they are. So especially in the current climate, don't underestimate then the capital need you will need eventually to get to that point. Um, and that should be the first starting point of you know, measuring your own success to say, okay, which are the investors that I wanna start talking to, who has the interest, expertise and deep pockets to continuously stay committed and invest. Um, usually that would be a, a qualified investor. Like you would get money from somebody like Zynga. They don't have a fund. They're not exiting at XYZ. They're looking at growing their business continuously. Um, same with somebody like Supercell. Um, same with somebody like Ubisoft or Activision. Do you want to partner up with these types of guys? Google, Microsoft, maybe not in your seed round, but you know, down the line. Um, mm -hmm. Versus if you're doing more like indie games um, and you're eventually really just wanting to get like start bootstrapping and then slightly get an investment and then grow based off of revenues, then that's not the, the way you're going to want to go. Because if you're just making 
You know, I mean, even you making 20 million a year isn't even going to flinch their bottom line or top line right. for that matter. Yeah. So they're going to be disappointed and you're going to be disappointed. So I guess my first recommendation is like, really think about what you're building here. Success tend to not be a lottery ticket. So just think about the plan um, of how you want to approach funding to begin with. That's like the first thing. Yeah. Okay. I've got a few questions in relation to that. One thing you noted was to have kind of your vision first. Um, and this is actually something that I think Sophie Vu talks about too. Um, actually, Yoke and Makar and lots of people do. So it's a good thing. But uh, have you ever heard of Simon Sinek's Start With Why? I've heard of it. Yeah. I don't remember that. I, or I, I don't remember reading um, reading it, but I I have heard of it. Yes. Cool. So I've read the book. I don't remember a lot of the details in it, but the high level kind of goes like this. It says, ultimately, you should start a company with a particular purpose. And oftentimes that purpose is, let's say, I don't know if they have these in Finland, but over here, there's these shoes called Tom shoes, um, which I'm not affiliated with. Um, but their whole thing was they want to provide shoes to, I think, people in Africa. Maybe it's worldwide now. I don't know. Um, but basically, their why was people should all have access to good shoes or something like that. Um, and then working from there, they said, okay, well, what can we do to help them to achieve that? And we said, well, we can actually make shoes. And then if the next step was like, okay, well, we'll make it so that every pair of shoes that somebody buys we're going to donate a pair of shoes. Um, and it, you know, it did a few things. It's like, ultimately they're going to be achieving that ultimate vision by selling these shoes like that. They have a profound story to tell people and they now have the ability to just kind of upcharge and sell these shoes for whatever they want, because people don't really care that they're paying extra, or maybe they know that they're paying extra, but they know that that extra is going towards, you know, doing something good or whatnot. Um, and so it's kind of just like finding like, what is the ultimate thing that we're trying to achieve here? And then working backwards from that into what we actually do versus a lot of people start with like the how or the what, and they miss that high level why, if that sort yeah. of makes sense. It makes sense. And I think in gaming, we are especially prone to make this mistake for a couple of reasons. The first reason is that, you know, for a while and, you know, I don't want to sound like the doomsday here, but that while might be running out of time at some point, but for a while, it's been pretty easy to get funding to a particular point. It becomes exponentially harder, the more money you want and the more time goes by, but it is fairly easy in gaming to get a seed round to get a b to get you know i would say less than 50 million in gaming is not atrocious atrociously hard to to achieve it's the 50 and up that starts getting tough but looking at the ua market um especially depending on your ambitions you're probably looking at needing 50 and up at some point in time so what i mean by that is you know somebody making a reason as to why you should invest in a shoe company has a harder time to make a convincing pitch than gaming because for a foreseeable time, it was fine to just say, hey, we make games. And everyone was like, yeah, I'm putting my money into that. Sort of like <laughs> Bitcoin and NFTs right now. Not that yeah. I want to respect that, but you know, um, it's enough to say we work on it for it to be intriguing. Uh, but at some point that bus blows sort of over. And then if you didn't think about your why, you're going to end up in trouble down the line. So that's like a one, one reason why that's not often thought about and can get you in trouble later. 
And the other thing is the why isn't always super easy to find in gaming. Very few games companies are out here trying to solve like, you know, world hunger or, you know, issues with the planet, right? So we often think of the why as something that is, you know, speaking deeply to our soul, but it doesn't really have to be that complex. Like, it can simply be like, why is this mechanic fun? Um, and I remember having even an argument uh, once uh, we were talking about this, you know, this um, game where there was collections. Um, we ended up killing the game. It's not one of the ones in our portfolio. And I remember I kept asking, I get it, but like, why does this person want to collect? And the game designers kept saying that it's like their primary motivation to collect. And I was like, but I have a different worldview. People don't just walk around collecting things because they want to collect <laughs> Like there's some other reason, underlying reason before that, and we have to figure what that out, what that is. And I remember using Nomad's Land as an example where I said, there's a purpose for people collecting heroes in Nomad's Land. They can use them. It's useful. They're living out this like fantasy of an apocalyptic world, right? Because we know that they're not collecting all 300. Nobody has a roster where they want all <laughs> characters for the purpose of collecting them but they do want characters because they personify with them, they identify with them and they wanna be them and experience that as they venture into the apocalypse. So what's the apocalypse for this game? Like what's your purpose for existence? Um, and so I think sometimes we make that why to be something massive, it doesn't have to be massive, but it does have to exist there of like, why this genre? Why this mechanic? Why, why this economy? Why all of these things? Why do I want to collect and come back and collect? And to make sure that we answer those like really fundamental questions. And also to find, like, um, I always say that as well from the business intelligence side, like BI, BI is smart, but it's also really dumb. We can only look at numbers, but we can't give context. So the better context that a designer or somebody who makes the game in terms of having a hypothesis of something happening, the better and faster we also are at helping there and figuring that out and vice versa. If we find something, the better context the designer has, the faster they understand what's going on when mm -hmm. we say, hey, here's something happening, right? So um, those things are super important to think about. Yeah. Have you guys at Next Games ever come up with some sort of process or template where it's like for each product? prototype you have to like go through and answer you know these whys and motivation questions and things like that yes um like i don't know how many templates i've probably seen and you know at the end of the <laughs> day this is you know this is an art it's not a science um we put them in place because they can be helpful um but they're not helpful if the person answering those questions are only doing it to tick boxes it's mm -hmm. only helpful if the person looking at those templates say okay, I'm gonna challenge myself to think about it. Cause you can always put some answer there and that doesn't necessarily, you know, work for the purpose that you're trying to do it. So, you know, if there was a magic template in the world that every game designer could take and then like by answering all these questions, you create a phenomenal game, that would be great. We know that's not the case, but they can be really helpful if you use them for you to answer those questions that, you know, to challenge yourself about the game that you're making. But if you're not using it in that way, there's no template that can save a bad game, like, or a lack of ideas or whatever, right? Yeah. Have you ever heard of Ethan Levy's Tower of Want concept? Yes, we use it. Yes. 
<laughs> I love it. So for folks that aren't aware of it, I'll do a Finland version. Um, so, you know, the Tower of Wendt, uh, he always uses the example of education. So, you know, I need to learn the alphabet so that I can learn to read, so that I can go to school, so that I can, you know, do well in school, to get into a good college, to get a good job, to buy a house, to, you know, get a job at Next Games, to sell my company to Netflix so that I can retire and spend more time in the sauna. Um, you know, you, you go through your tower of once, you know, all the way till the end of it. And sometimes you don't even have to, like, as the player know about this long-term goal of retiring and spending more time in the sauna, you know, when you're five years old and you don't care about that. Um, but it's kind of a, iterative process of, you know, why and what, and how does that lead from one thing to the other, those, you know, deep motivations that your players have. Yeah, exactly. And we've, we've definitely used that as well. You described it perfectly. And also a part of that is that some of those things don't unlock until, you know, you grow older, right? Like I think <laughs> some of my goals when I was younger was like, oh, well, hopefully I'll get a job. And then, you know, <laughs> that something else. and it's the same in games, like, especially in the beginning, you're just like, I'm just trying to figure this thing out. Like, I don't, why, you know, is it doing this? Is it doing that? Like, what am I doing over here? And then over time, you know, those goals become more um, prominent as you do it. Love it. Okay. Back to our startup example. Um, <laughs> you talked a little bit about um, thinking about your company's goals and, you know, long-term, where are we going kind of things. So first off, I want to agree on that completely. Um, I think your co-founders and who you're like choosing to go on this journey, super critical. Also, you need to, you know, treat it as if you're getting married. You need to have those religious and political and, you know, all those other like dirty conversations that nobody really wants to have, but to make sure that you're all kind of aligned because, you know, I, I've seen actually successful startups fall apart where, you know, one founder, oh yeah, we get an offer for 20 million or 50 million, like we're out of here. And then the other one's like, oh, we're pushing to a billion. And then that can cause a lot of angst. Like once you get to the point where like you're more successful than ever, and that can just tear apart the team. And so you, know, you got to have those dirty, messy conversations, you know, beforehand and all be on the same page. Um, but anyways, you talked a little bit about company goals um, and setting them beforehand. And you talked about bootstrapping. Is it even possible to bootstrap like say a mobile games company in today's world and environment? Uh, short answer, no. Um, to an extent, it is yes. Uh, I mean, of course, uh, I think what's going to be what's already common in the tech space, um, you know, if you have an idea of an app or something, and I've advised a few companies and I've seen the struggles, is that most investors actually will not touch you until you have like a playable prototype or something that's functional, that works, that you can actually show. Mm. Um Whereas in gaming for some time, you could raise money with just a deck. Um, I think that just a deck started going more to, okay, you need some tentative numbers of like day one retention or like engagement or something. And my assumption is that those requirements as well are going to probably get harsher and harsher as we go along. So um, there's no doubt that you cannot I mean, if we look at reasonable game budgets these days, it's like at least 4 million for a small game, but probably more like 10 million, right? So you're not bootstrapping that for sure because you're not getting a team of 20 people who aren't getting paid while you develop these games. <laughs> um, but there will probably be needed some bootstrapping to get to a particular point um, to say, hey, we have the core loop proven out or we have some good numbers to kind of start with to be able to raise money. 
And I would um, say to your, to your earlier comment um, about having all those hard conversations, the one thing where companies fail is the same thing um, why marriages sometimes fail, but at the same time, it's the conversation nobody wants to have, which is what's the divorce look like, right? Nobody <laughs> gets married and discusses divorce, but sometimes that can get very, very messy. And I think for companies, that's the same, right? So what's your expectations of an exit? Um, and this is easier, easier said than done, but I would even say, that even for yourself and for the investors, like write down those numbers at a valuation where you're saying like, this is where I'm happy because otherwise you can be bitter either way, right? Mm -hmm. Like you didn't leave when you should have or you're bitter because you left too early. But if you kind of mentally, like I put that mentally in my head, I was like, if I can pay my mortgage back, then that's like success enough for the first time for me, for the first time I do this. Love it. I was pretty close to like, when I first started my company, I was like, if I can pay off all like student loans and mortgage yeah. and just be debt-free, like I'll be happy. So it got there and, and that was exciting. Um, cool. Uh, general question that I'm sure a lot of people are kind of, you know, wondering, and I'm curious what your take on it. So I've got this startup in whatever phase that I'm at, and I know that I probably need to raise money, but I've maybe not gone through that process before or whatnot. What makes an you know investor, like what gets their attention or interest or what are the types of things that you've seen like draw investors to say like a, a games company? I would say it's the same thing as an employer when you're looking for a job. The number one mistake that most companies make is that they make it about them instead of really tailoring the pitch to who are you selling this to, right? Um, so if you're applying for a job um, to be in the makeup industry, make sure, A, that you actually want to be in that industry and then how you fit into that industry. And some people, when people apply for jobs, and that's even if, even if you're in finance, right? Companies don't want to hire you if you're highly uninterested in the product that they're sell selling, no matter what you do for a living, whether you're a coder, a designer, like whatever it is. And the same goes for raising capital. It's do take the time to do your due diligence, right? Like I have somewhat of a reputation that I'm a tough negotiator and I'm 100% going in and I'm looking up everybody on LinkedIn that I'm talking to. I'm looking at their work history, like what have they done? What's been their role in the company? How long have they been there? What deals have they made? What deals have they not made? If that's publicly available, depending, like what's the strategy of the company in general? And I try to figure out how, you know, we would or wouldn't fit into sort of that, like um, into that mix. Um, and that I can even give an example for the for for this transaction, right? With Netflix, Netflix, I'm sure had a billion different um, you know companies that they could have acquired, and surely still has a billion different opportunities. Um, and no, it's not enough. It, it is not enough that you have a game with a license or anything like this. It, it simply isn't enough. And if people think that that's enough, they're delusional because that's not the <laughs> case. So you still just as much have to do the sales work. You have to do the due diligence on them and on yourself. Like, is this a relationship that makes sense? And we spend a lot of time talking about culture, um, talking about culture fit, talking about how do we work together after this happens? Um, so understanding really who you're selling to and what you're selling is super, super important. And I think that's where sometimes companies get it wrong. Um, you know, they come in there and they pitch their company the same way 
to every person that they're raising capital from. And then you already know you're kind of on a slippery slope. Not saying you have to overhaul your presentation, but make sure you're doing the tweaks that you understand who's sitting against you. Like who are you negotiating with and what makes them tick? It can be as simple as, you know, this VC fund cares about creative, this VC fund cares about the numbers. Make sure you're highlighting whatever is important to the person you're pitching. Got it. So just refactoring that a little bit, um, let's say I want to get a job at Next Games. Um, rather than just like straight up sending my resume, it would probably behoove me to like, let's say I want to work for you. So I, I do some research on the things that you're doing, maybe try to find out what problems are you having or like what some what are some areas of focus and then you know a linkedin message or email or cover letter or something that's like hey anina i want to come in and own x for you here's why i think i can do it well you know what i've done in the past you know are you up for a chat or something chances are you might at least be willing to have a conversation and i'll get further with you than had i just sent it to hr at next games or something like that um hundred percent. And for the VC fund, really simple thing. Start by looking. They usually have publicly like who they've invested in or what games they've had. So, you know, simply looking at that and going, okay, you know, either we can tell that you're missing this type of game in your profile and that's why we're great. Or to say, hey, you saw real success when you invested in this, whatever, collecting RPG, whatever example, match three thing. Um, and we saw that you did an exit in three years and we're going to be the next X for you. And this is how we're similar and why we're different and what's you know the key to doing that. Um, and that's why I say it's different for every VC because every VC has invested differently. And all VCs will have an investing philosophy. So make sure you know what that is and make sure you tailor your pitch accordingly. Love it. Okay. I want to switch gears just a little bit, and I want to talk about kind of UA funding within the realm of uh, mobile. So I feel like today, pretty much everything is still performance marketing. Like maybe we get an outlier that has some like organic traction for a while or, or something else that's in there, but I feel like everything is performance marketing. And I know all the, the web three people are contending that community is going to revolutionize everything and you don't have to do, deal with UA anymore in web three. I think, okay, maybe for a hot second, just like, you know, a few of the early mobile companies didn't have to deal with it. But after that, I think it's going to come back down to performance marketing. Um, and and so, you know, within this realm, I'm curious, you know, how do you look at the, the financials of, you know, UA in terms of your CPI versus your LTV and like the ROAs and, and how long that time frame should take? Like, you know, from a financial perspective, do you have any like ideal target numbers when you're thinking about something or percentages or whatnot? Yes. And here's a whole heap of complexity that comes in, right? Because the first of all, the industry right now is obviously horrendous, like absolutely horrendous. And one really good way to figure this out is to take Facebook's any quarterly earnings report, like pick your poison, right? Look at how what they call ARPPU, which is average re revenue per, per, per user, um, has grown like 350% in five years, right? And look at that absolute numbers, which is something in the US of like, you know, 26 
dollars, something like this. And then understand that that number is the back number to your CPI, because if that's what the cost is, if that's what they earn per user, and that's what you pay per user, right? And of course, it's averaged out. Um, but, you know, that is a horrendous number to meet in terms of an LTV um, calculation. Right? And yeah, that will balance out between games and genres and all that type of stuff. But generally speaking, you know, we have gone from, you know, 50 cents to $26 in like six years. And anybody telling me that this is easy, you know, it's not right. So the fallback of that is while Facebook keeps pushing prices to a level that are now unsustainable, there's nothing to say, but that they are for every genre everywhere, unsustainable. It means only the random unicorns make it on the UA side, right? Like you have to have some sort of virality or something that, that again can actually pay those numbers back unless you're willing to accept, you know, massive losses and massive payback times for, and we're not talking months, we're talking years. Mm-hmm. We're talking two years, three years, which unforceably it's going to make, you know, developers seek out publishers is essentially, you know, uh, what's going to happen here. And to make matters worse, most likely the large companies, Ubisoft, Activision, all these other guys, they're sitting there going, well, I don't mind at all, right? Like if I'm the one who grows the game, then I get the majority of the profits of the game. So they probably don't mind the setup of Facebook raising prices to an unattainable scale right now with huge cash positions, right? It plays well into their their book. I'm sure they'd like higher margins, but at the same time, it's creating a possibility for them to control the industry. So surely they're happy about this. On the flip side of that, companies that attempt to stay independent are not so happy. Um, So, you know, Payback times will be to some extent genre specific, but we have moved from talking about like, I think in 2015, people were speaking about like 90 day paybacks to like hearing about somebody who has less than 365 days payback. It's like, whoa, what did you do there? Like, that's unbelievable, right? Um, And the issue with this too is that it stacks, right? Like while, you know, you spend 60 million on growing your game the first year, you have to continue growing it the next year. So you have that loss, plus you got to occur more losses until you actually reach a level where your DAU is big enough to not only fund the current users, but also the previous like users, mm-hmm. right? So that makes it tough. Um, what makes it really interesting from a finance perspective is as long as you're running one game, the math is fairly simple. Because really all you have to do is you have to look at that game, the return on investment, the payback time, like when are you going to hit your LTV number, whether you want to do that on a cash basis or a profit basis. And what I mean, the difference is, of course, like, do you want to look at net or gross, right? Like gross will come faster. Net is what you're actually getting cash. So whether you're doing like a gross calculation or net calculation, that's simple. As you start controlling multiple games and a multiple and a portfolio of games, Um, you're starting to having different complexities because let's say even if you have at the same time four phenomenal next Fortnite games, like whatever it is, like (laughs) infinite scale coming your way, um, you don't necessarily have a hundred million cash to grow all of them at the same time. And that's when you start coming into complexities in terms of like, how do you actually balance the finances behind that? How do you decide then like, what do you first grow and not grow? And if something has a longer payback time or a shorter payback period. So we've had a lot of those conversations, for example, concerning Nomadland and Our World um, at a point in time where we simply said, well, we could grow the game now, 
But if the returns are coming in from that two or three years down the line, um, you know, is it making sense in what we overall see um, as the capital need we would need now to raise with our current valuation versus the benefit of seeing an uptick of, you know, whatever $100,000 that would be in revenues in the next two, three years? Like, what's your net present value of this investment? Like, what's your time value of money? Does it make sense mm-hmm. to do that? So the traditional way of thinking about it is, you know, to say, um, I'm looking at this project, and if this project is worth scaling, then I should put money into it, and I should start scaling, and I should raise the capital to do that. Look at the payback time, and you know, budget accordingly. Principle of finance states that as you start having having multiple, even if you have multiple NPV positive projects, you have to start choosing if you can't do them all, like how you're going to be doing this, how you're going to be balancing this. Um, so it does get you know pretty complex pretty fast, which is why the big players, the big publishers have massive finance departments, have strong BI departments to figure all of these things out. Um, And my favorite example um, about this is what they told us as a tale in finance about Warren Buffett, how he once um, went to a, um, he was like driving, I guess, around uh, and he he stopped for for gas and, uh, and a burger at McDonald's. And we all know if you've seen the documentary, he loves these McMuffins or something. So he stops there uh, and he walks up and he's out of gas and he's supposed to have like his muffin. And he realized he left his wallet at home, but his home is like four hours or something away. And he's trying to explain to all the people there that he's Warren Buffett, like he has all the money in the world. It's, you know, no problem. Just fill up my tent, my gas so I can go home. Like, I'll send you the money. Like, can I just get my coffee and my McMuffin? And they're like, not doing anything. You're staring at him like you're a crazy person because you're in the middle of Nebraska. Nobody knows who you are. Like, you know, and the lesson in this was there's a difference between wealth and liquidity and you have to balance both. It's not enough that you have a great product with great potential that can scale infinitely if you run out of liquidity, e.g. you didn't handle your cash position in a reasonable way to get there. So if you don't have access to your money, you're going to end up in trouble. And that's where really payback periods come in and are super important in this context. Yeah. So my kind of first successful company, Theorem Reach, um, which does like rewarded surveys on mobile and stuff, still around, still doing great. But I remember in the early days, like when we really finally nailed the product and we started scaling faster, um, it was like every month we were growing by like $100,000, you know, additional per month, which was super cool, except for a while we're paying publishers on net 30, but we're getting paid on like net 60. Um, wow. And and so there was always this, like, it's like, well, we're making more money, but having less and less in the bank. Um, and so our short-term solution, which we eventually caught up from, was using factoring, um, wow. where basically, oh, I've got this invoice. Will you fund, you know, fund. Yeah. 85, 90% of it, and then, you know, offset mm-hmm. it or whatnot. Um, and that worked out well. We had to pay some fees on it, but we got by. Um I think that there are some companies that kind of do that in mobile gaming, like Paul and VC. I hear a lot about, I know that Tilting Point and Network, at least before the Forte acquisition, would do some of this where like they had different versions of their publishing opportunities where like, we can just give you money or we can like co-develop the game or anywhere in between um, kind of a thing. Um, have you ever used anything like that to kind of like ensure the liquidity? Like, would you recommend folks consider something like that to fund ROAS based? So here's where I'm probably like a huge dissident. And I remember even talking to an investment banker who uh, recommended to me to consider UA funding. And my response Mm -hmm. was that they take worse rakes than illegal poker games. Like I'm out. 
right? Um, and so what I mean by that, if it's somebody starting to take four to 6%, right? Like on what you're making, that is a terrifying amount, especially as you're looking at like smaller margins all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, it's clear, I think, for some of these companies that uh, depending on the size of the company, of course, the quality of the product, they will probably give a different offer, right? Like they'll give a better or a worse offer. Um, But usually the situation is that the reason why you're turning to these companies is because you cannot get funding elsewhere. Um, And that in itself puts you in a very precarious position because that means they're Mm. usually taking a rake. So that would mean a slice of your pie um, that for some you know, can be actually unattainable at the end of the day um, to get there. So, you know, if you're aggressively growing and you're in between rounds, for example, you're just about to raise your next round and you just need a little bit of temporary funding for three to six months and you're willing to kind of take the hit on that as well. But your most important focus is to say, okay, we know that's going to happen, but it's okay because we can still show that we're growing. And if it wasn't for the margins that we're now having to pay doing this, you know, ROAS funding, then we would be totally good. Then whichever finance professional comes in, looks at that and says, well, I'm just going to cut them out of the equation and we're good. So if that's the, 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 the purpose of it, yeah, no problem. Go for it. Do it for a few months. Have your exit plan in place. You know, make sure that you have the numbers there that you can fund it for a while to, to have to cover your liquidity, all that type of stuff. But if it's your like last resort, then you're just essentially like planning for your bankruptcy is my opinion in this while paying somebody else to do it for you. So um, so then I would be careful. But there are reasons why factoring um, it is a good idea. And especially when you're growing and you really see that you are growing and you're really in between these rounds and getting to the next level. Yes, um, I won't completely close it out. It can make sense. But it's not a good idea if you are in soft launch and you're just starting to scale your your game and you're thinking maybe this will work out or not. <laughs> if your numbers are there, like sure, you know, it's the risk. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I am curious, like really, I feel like performance marketing is like the de facto go-to in games, but you look at other successful apps that are out there and Facebook, Tinder, Snapchat, all these other, none of them really use performance marketing. And the idea of having to pay, especially if you're paying $26 per year, like it's just basically unattainable. Now, maybe TikTok like burned a few billion dollars, like trying to, to scale up and, and they could, but um, I feel like growth marketing is really, you know, hacked out. So I, I was reading, I forget which book, I've, I read a lot of books, um, but they were talking about how Tinder got started. Um, and so, oh, the cold start problem. Uh, very, very good book. Um, but he was talking about how Tinder got started. Um, and they said, okay, well, there's two sides of our effectively dating market, right? We've got the hard side, which are women. Um, and then we've got the easy side, which are guys. And so if we can get a lot of attractive women in there, we'll probably get tons of guys. Once we have them, then probably more women will come. And so they said, okay, well, how do we approach this? And they said, well, let's focus on a single college campus. And I think they targeted like a few select sororities that were supposedly filled with attractive women. And they all got them to go to a, a party that Tinder hosted. And in order to get in, you had to download the app. Um, Once all the attractive women were there, well, the guys that came also got on there and pretty soon it just kind of exploded on the campus. And then they basically reused that same thing campus by campus by campus as they scaled throughout the US. Now, I expect that things changed over time um, as they scaled to cities and internationally and things like that. But it was very interesting to think through it. I've never really seen this sort of thing done in gaming. And I'm curious your take, like, could it even be feasible to use some sort of like growth hacking tactic to try to get around having to spend 
so much money to acquire these users is, you know, a $26 LTV is a, unattainable to, to most games, definitely. Yeah. Um, so, and they're not the only, Facebook did the exact same thing. They started at Harvard, right? It was yep. Harvard, what was the name of it again? But something like Harvard Connect or something like this, yeah. right? It became Facebook. Um, they're not the only ones like, I think Aperol as a spirit is one of the best, most modern recent examples of like, nobody here knew of an Aperol spritz like six years ago. And then all of a sudden we're all out there drinking this um, on the, in the sun, right? Uh, there's a couple of days that then tried the same. But what Aperol Spritz essentially did was they went to New York to the Hamptons and they, at any price, would pay to get into the most prominent parties um, on um, in the Hamptons, uh, New York summertime. And from there, it kind of spread like wildfires because they got these influencers um, to do it, right? So it's essentially like influencer marketing in a different way than maybe we would it's not digital in the same way, but it's, it is influencer marketing. Um, if you've seen, I think it's called White Hot, which is the Abercrombie Fitch documentary on Netflix, similar thing that they did. They went into all these fraternities to get all these guys wearing Abercrombie and Fitch um, to make all the women feel like, oh, that's what you got to wear to be a hot guy. And then some rapper wrote a song about it. And then the whole brand exploded, essentially. Um, so this has been done forever. It was just a different type of influencer marketing. There are examples of companies who have largely stayed away from UA. I mean, Seriously is one who spent um, years growing their brand, not by UA, right? Like by different marketing, by doing radio, by doing, you know, so not exactly going into a campus, but still a different approach to performance marketing. I didn't know um, that. Yeah, they did. And uh, and Supercell, um, I think is, is an example of a company that that has like, dabbled in UA, they do, they've done UA, but their games have not traditionally been grown by super aggressive UA in proportion to their revenues. Um, I think that's like, if you spend 500 million on marketing, like you can debate whether or not that's aggressive, but at the same time, proportionate to their revenues, um, you know, you can look at that and say, it's not, it's not as aggressive as one might think. Um, there's also examples of Pokemon Go who really, I think, never effectively tried UA. I think they they tried some campaigns and and but really didn't grow off of the um, of the backbone of performance marketing. So then you have to go back and say, okay, well, if not performance marketing, what are the alternatives? Like, do you have a game that plays well on TV, on radio, on YouTube with influencers? What that might be. Um, and the other alternative to that is saying, well, what mechanics do you have in your game that's making it viral so that people are inviting their friends over to play it? Um, and these are often things that are thought of post facto. So social features like that are being slapped on late in the game when they're like, well, I guess I got to have a Facebook login, like, you know, because everybody saves their game that way. Instead of thinking fundamentally, how do you create word of mouth and encourage players to get others into the game if they start playing it? And actually, I'll even use our own um, game as an example. Uh, I think we learned a lot of lessons in our world. So kind of by accident in one way, we had built in a virality. I wouldn't say by accident, but we had built in a virality feature into the game, which was that um, because of the fact that it was map-based, you would see all the other players and they're like safe houses on maps. Um, and when we originally launched our world, we even have screenshots of the entire island of Manhattan being so full with safe houses that you couldn't build one. Like we physically had not, it had not occurred to us a problem 
where the whole local area is so filled with players, you can't add more people into the game, right? And so we had initially like a huge, and not just that, then when you come into the game, you're like, wow, I'm like surrounded by all these people who are also playing the game. Everybody around me is playing the game. That makes you also want to play the game and get more people into playing the game. So, you know, with all the issues that we had with our world, the initial success was actually quite big. What followed was, you know, kind of two problems. First, well-known, we had really big technical problems with that game, which, you know, resolved over time, but was a little bit late at the time then. And the second thing is, obviously, that's not great if you want to play the game, but you actually physically can't play the game because there's no space on the map to play the game. So that was like some of the issues we had to deal with. And the flip side of it ended up being true. Then when you come into the game and if nobody's on the map, you're like, oh, this feels like a ghost town. Like, you know, now I'm going to leave the game altogether. So I think a lot of times these features are maybe built into the game that I don't think Pokemon Go really considered all the effects of what they had created. I don't think all games are so, um, game creators often think that detailed about all of this. But the number one thing is, you know, if you want to get rid of performance marketing, I don't think you can scale a normal game by going into a campus and try to force people to start playing it. What you've got to ask yourself is, what is it about my game and the game design that makes this game, you know, um, viral that makes me want to have somebody else play it right and think about how big that barrier kind of is Mm. what i mean by that is i sometimes ask my friends they're like oh you're in games like oh i don't play games and i'm like oh you don't play games have you ever played candy crush yeah have you played (laughs) pokemon go yeah have you played (laughs) hardscapes or homescapes yeah but i mean i don't play games Right. <laughs> What's the barrier of entry for somebody to say, hey, I'm sending you the link to this game that I'm playing. I want you to join when I don't even want to begin with identify with the fact that I'm playing a game. Mm. Um, even though everybody's doing it, 90% of the world population is playing games. So these are some of the complexities I think you have to think about if you want to move away from performance marketing and start something that becomes viral. That makes a lot of sense. Well, cool. Anina. I could keep asking you questions for a lot longer. Um, so smart and brilliant. I really appreciate you joining us today. I do have one final question for you because we are on the Mastering Retention podcast. And that is, you know, what's one tip or trick or lesson you learned over the years that have, you know, kept players playing for longer? Like, how do you keep them engaged and coming back day after day, week after week, hopefully year after year? I think that question is better given to a game designer, but I can answer the opposite instead, which is I find that in many ways, retention is like eating a bag of candy. You're going to make a decision within the first five to 15 minutes, whether or not you like it or not. And if you don't like it, you're not going to keep eating the candy and you're not going to keep playing the game. So though I fundamentally agree that day one retention is not the most important part of a game. What it is important is that you dissect that day one retention and really look at the behaviors who those who plays for longer, how many of those play for longer and what that tells you about the future potential of that game. So that's what I would say. But otherwise the traditional answer is obviously engaging events, live ops, like (laughs) content, all that fun stuff. But there's a bunch of live ops managers and designers who can for sure give better answers to that question. 
I love it. Color me fascinated what the future holds for live ops and Netflix games too. So we're, we're excited to watch what you guys do. <laughs> excited we are as well. So, well, cool. Uh, thank you so much for joining me. Um, if people do have any questions or things, is there a good way for them to get in contact with you? Yes. Um, uh, I think the best way is to DM me on LinkedIn. Um, and sometimes, you know, me, I take some time to respond. I'm not always there, but I do try to get through my messages at least at some point to have some patience. And if you don't hear from me, just ping me again. That's great. Well, thank you so much, Anina. I hope you have a lovely rest of your evening. Perfect. Thank you.